Now, speaking of being clear and explicit about the rule of product manager, uh, I found it uh, rare to come across a resource like the Influential Product Manager book, which gives a highly practical and approachable guide to becoming more effective and navigate the challenging and collaborative aspects of product management. Uh, Ken Sandy, the author of The Influential Product Manager, has got 20 plus years of experience in technology product management. Ken pioneered and teaches the first product management course offered in the engineering school at UC Berkeley, which has over 400 PM alumni in practicing industries. Ken has served as VP of product at leading online education companies in the past, uh, such as Masterclass and Lynda.com, and uh, which is actually LinkedIn Learning now, and is currently an executive consultant and advisor for startup and scale-up companies. Hey, I'm your host, Cyrus Sleeman, and welcome to PMOHA Podcast, a show dedicated to bringing you fresh and unique insights from product leaders and tech entrepreneurs. All right, Ken, welcome to PMOHA. Uh, thanks a lot. I'm really excited to, to be doing this. 100%. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ken. And, you know, I've taken some time to read most of your book, The Influential Product Manager, which is basically, I found to be like a gold mine of how-tos, you know, practical frameworks, tools, and templates. And a piece basically that I enjoyed the most myself is your concrete examples from your past experience. So <laughs> I'd love to, yeah, jump right in. I mean, I'm curious to know, why did you write a book to begin with? And even like, why did you have the word influential as the name in, in the title? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, picking a book title is one of the hardest things I've done. It was harder than writing the book. <laughs> well, not not really, but you get my gist. It was kind of it was pretty hard. Picking a book cover was only was harder than the title. That was another another thing that we went back and forth on. But um, but uh, yeah, well, why why the book? Look, I mean, um, product management as one of the fastest growing and very highly sought after roles. Uh, certainly, I, I work in uh, university settings and and. Uh, there's a lot of aspiring product managers out there and companies across the board are really realizing the value of that independent product management role to, to drive value. This is happening all over the place. It's been happening for a while. But uh, another trend that I think is happening is, is, that, um, is that as as we mature, what product management actually does is becoming more transferable across companies and industries. There's uh, greater uh, uh, knowledge and thought partnership in terms of what a product manager actually does do or can or should be doing. We're having really interesting debates about where product managers add value, particularly moving upstream out of delivery into, into really uh, making sure that we're uh, building the right product as opposed to building the product right. Uh, and and uh, as as we've gone through that, so that's one 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 trend that's happening uh, but another that I've really noticed is that we bounce bounce around this term called you know influence influence or influential very frequently uh, we use it in terms like managing through influence or it might be uh, uh, stated as all responsibility but no no authority 
And uh, I've really realized that there's, uh, first of all, uh, an understanding of that's important, but not a lot of understanding of what that actually looks like in practice. Mm-hmm. And it's also uh, emphasized the importance of the more adaptive skills in the product management role. So if you sort of think of technical skills about how we do our job or what we do, um, the, the, the kinds of the nuts and bolts, there's the adaptive skills, which are the more human, collaborative, the, the subtle alignment skills that we bring uh, and how we sprinkle that throughout the product life cycle. So whether it's when we're trying to understand our customer or prioritizing work or working with engineers or indeed launching a product into the market, the role that influence has throughout that entire kind of life cycle, if you will, is, um, is I think, uh, understood as important, but not necessarily understood of what the practices are. And so that's kind of what I realized might be the gap for a book. And so I wrote a highly practical, very hands-on guide of how to actually be influential throughout that life cycle, whether it's managing stakeholder uh, relationships, uh, partnering with engineering, or even selecting metrics that focus on customer value over, say, your own business goals and sort of elevating those. That's all examples of of, of using influence in your role. Mm. No, I love that. Thanks for really, you know, putting the time to write this book. And, uh, you know, I, I found a lot of value, you know, just, just going through it. And yeah, it's like, just like what you say, you know, as, as the field is progressing and becoming more, uh, the, the responsibilities are becoming more kind of transferable. I think these having like, uh, you know, what you have, like the guides and, you know, how to is really going to help. Uh, no matter what kind of area you are as a PM, right? So thanks for, you know, uh, yeah, writing no, that book. No problems. And, you know, I, I've really invested in the, the book will have tips and, and little checklists and, uh, and sort of summaries. And there's even more also on a website that I've put together, uh, more resources there that you can kind of download of templates and things that can be used as well. But I've, I really wanted to get to the, the crux of, what it really means on the ground uh, and giving you a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Right. on. Now, in your book, you know, uh, you, you talk about that influential product managers employ a set of fundamental and sometimes contradictory mindsets. Uh, I'd love to hear more about this, if you can elaborate. Yeah. Um, so simply put, uh, I, I think it goes without saying that we all have certain ways that we inherently approach our work. Sort of these are our kind of our go-to strengths. Uh, some of us like to think big. Uh, I've certainly met my fair share of visionaries like that, uh, but they can be scant on details. Uh, others like to go very deep into data, get very analytic, and, uh, and others still uh, trying to, in, a, in an honest and kind of, uh, purposeful way in a heartfelt desire to be constructive, they'll tend to push on assumptions, poke holes, criticize, right? Uh, and others uh, will uh, tend to be champions and, and try to really uh, be cheerleaders for their, for their organization. So there's, there's just these different kind of mindsets or approaches that people tend to bring to work that I've noticed. And I was wondering whether there was some framework that I could kind of tease these out and sort of talk about how product managers actually can employ these different mindsets. And sometimes they can be very contradictory, right? So being an evangelist can be very different from being a, uh, being in a critical mindset. So uh, I, I, had this, I had this hypothesis, which 
through research is definitely uh, shown to be highly likely uh, to be the case is that while a successful PM does not need to master all these different mindsets, uh, and in fact, that would be unfair, uh, they must be a- able to kind of push outside their comfort zone, balance their thinking and kind of, uh, and those importantly, balance those of others in the organisation to sort of push on and make sure that they're making the right decisions by employing these different mindsets at different points in time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that related to whole, the whole idea of like, you know, T-shaped product management as well, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I think the, the uh, being, being able to go broad where it matters and uh-huh. then having those, those, those strengths to go deep, where, which is something that you might really uniquely bring to an organization is, is critical. Uh, these, um, these mindsets, which I can actually go into a little bit of detail about these if you wish. Yeah, let's um, do it. Yeah, um, so I think a a simple framework, which is laid out in the book, is to just think about uh, two axes across each other. So you end up with kind of this two-by-two matrix. Uh, On one axis, you have this kind of, um, on one end of the scale is is to imagine. And this sort of on the the, um, horizontal scale. And imagining is, as you would imagine, (laughs) is about suspending kind of, your your reality and trying to think strategically and think about like the the possibilities and where you could be and on the other end of the the scale of that same scale is is inspect and inspect is looking at today's reality and looking at what you have in front of you and understanding the data understanding the customer understanding the state of your product those are those sort of work at two extremes then you can imagine uh, intersecting that axis with another, which is on one side at the top. So this is a kind of a vertical axis at the top is this divergent thinking where you're just open to possibilities. You're, you're trying to go very, very broad and, 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 and allow you to uh, think, think expansively. But convergence is also very important and that's at the sort of the other end of that scale is being able to be very focused when you need to be to be able to really zero in on the things that really matter and get into the details and so those it struck me that those sorts of axes were uh, kind of at odds with each other and kind of created some interesting zones in, in four quadrants and those four quadrants I've called the explorer which is kind of the imagined divergent self mindset uh the analyst which is kind of this uh uh, inspect divergent mindset the challenger mindset which is uh inspecting the inspect and convergent and evangelist which is imagining possibilities and and this convergent mindset so you've got those four things so I'll, i'll i'll just break those down a little bit more the explorer mindset really i found uh uh, is is about thinking about seeking out and embracing and being open to lots of new ideas. Even at first, those ideas might seem very distracting from the roadmap, and this is where these things start becoming uh, uh, in contention with each other, right? So they might mm-hmm. seem distracting. Uh, but if you in the explorer mindset, you you seek to set context about what the business needs and the customer needs, and you're open to uh, understanding the problem space and really sharing that, and you're really there to seek out multiple potential solution paths 
uh, that you might be able to take before you focus on one. And so I find that the explorer mindset kind of drives innovation. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you employ that, you're enabling your you and your team to really innovate around uh, potential problems that you could solve. Now, the analyst mindset, uh, really, that's developing an understanding. Uh, you go hunting for new data and insights. You're kind of like this detective. Uh, you are trying to get into data, cut and slice it. You're always trying to figure out uh, what 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 are the trends or the hidden nuggets that might be in your data? Uh, you, you are also uh, very much valuing, and in fact, you need to participate in doing user and customer interviews. And you don't just focus on your own solutions, but you're trying to get to know the customer. You're trying to observe their problems. You're bringing back qualitative as well as this quantitative uh, context into, into, uh, into your team. And that's the analyst mindset. Mm-hmm. The, the, the challenger mindset allows you to identify and mitigate risk. So far from just simply being critical, it actually really helps you surface assumptions that you've been making that might undermine your success. Uh, it also allows you to do this sort of subtle psychology change. Like when you restate your ideas in terms of a hypothesis, it allows you to focus on the problem and what might validate or invalidate it and not your personal feelings or personal attachment to that idea. And so this allows you to kind of work more iteratively, say no to things, look for disconfirming um, validation evidence, uh, and you can just sort of embrace those dissenting voices. So far from trying to avoid unhappy customers or, or not talk to the you know that engineer that always pushes back and asks why are you working on something, you embrace that because you actually really, really want to uh, uh, understand kind of what might be uh, what not what might not be going so well for your product, and then finally, uh, often overlooked, uh, the the evangelist mindset really allows you to build momentum. It allows you to kind of uh, focus your team. It motivates your team, builds support for with your team and your stakeholders for a particular path. It requires a lot of over communication, education on the outcomes. Uh, You're you're really bringing to work an infectious optimism and enthusiasm while you're still being realistic. And importantly, it allows, it's an important step, a mindset where you kind of lose ownership and you allow the team to kind of own the problem and, and, and solve it. And that's an, that's a hard thing for many, um, for many product managers to do. So that's basically what the, the four mindsets. And I, I, I'm, Pressed to argue that a product manager does not need at least you know, some of each of those to bring those to work at least um, some of the time, uh, that if there's a gap in any one of those in a substantive way, then uh, they're potentially not being as successful. Yeah. No, I love that. You know, when you had this quadrants, you know, you had me there. It's, it's beautiful the way you laid it out and how, you know, the, the, there's a diversion part and there's a conversion part, right? Which actually reminds me of the double diamond approach <laughs> that's been used, that's right? right? In design thinking, right? So, uh, but that's exactly how it is. You know, you you broaden your scope and then you narrow down, you focus it, right? So I love how you uh, kind of like applied the same uh kind of way of thinking to to this framework that's beautiful so uh you know now if i if i'm to you know 
map product management lifecycle, you know, from ideate to discover to deliver and launch, how do each mindset that you have out of uh-huh. these kind of uh, align uh, with each of these phases? Like, do you rely more, more heavily, uh, you know, on one mindset depending on the phase of the product you're at? I'm often I'm often asked this question, and and actually you've brought up the the design fr- thinking framework, and uh, I've I've been asked whether my framework is just another way of looking at design thinking, and I think it differs in one important way, in that uh, the sort of divergent conversion divergent kind of like kind of model, uh, or it's actually diver- you diverge then converge then diverge then converge right. Uh, right. the, the notion of that being a linear process is not actually the, the thing that I'm suggesting product managers can or should do. So that is where we do differ is that it's not a strictly linear with the development life cycle. Uh, it's not uniquely suited to say a different industry or, or a specific product growth maturity like level. I find that actually these things are things that you're, you're flipping between these with these mindsets sometimes in the same day because you're always trying to kind of move the product kind of along a little bit. I, I, a better analogy is to think about you're just trying to move the ball a little bit forward and sometimes you're moving multiple balls forward because you've at the same time of kind trying to get your team to focus on solving a particular issue. You can't be at the same time bringing all the uh, all of the uh, unknowns to the table and all these other potential ideas you might be working on. So you can't not be in this sort of evangelist mindset with, say, your team, but at the same time, you might need to literally walk into a meeting with a set of executives an hour later where they're going to be challenging your assumptions and maybe discussing whether or not your idea needs to be redirected or even stopped. Uh, and, some t- and then if you're not then also digging into data kind of next hour and then pot- potentially holding a brainstorm uh, on other ideas that you might be able to work on uh, the following hour, this is why product management can be very hard is that it's not, it, you're, you're more likely to jump around these things depending on what goals you're trying to achieve in any one part of your product at any point in time. So that, that's a, a key takeaway. Don't think about this as I work linearly through each of these things in that I need to be able to bring my best game uh, and apply the mindsets to the situation that I'm finding myself in almost hour to hour. That said, uh, it is true that early on in my life cycle, say uh, I, I'm in that kind of ID8 phase, naturally that kind of explorer and analyst kind of mindset is going to be more valuable. I'm going to want to open up the um, lots of possibilities and think about different solutions. I'm going to want to bring a lot of customer data to the table for context. And then during prioritization, uh, discovery prioritization of what you're actually going to build, I'm probably looking more at the analyst challenger mindsets. I'm figuring out what to say no to as much as what I'm going to say yes to. And then later on as I'm really getting the, 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 the delivery engine going. I don't want to be in my explorer mindset anymore. I don't want to be all over the place with new ideas. I want to be really critically focused on what need, what, what is the right level of scope? What can I cut? What, what has to be there? And I really need to be building that evangelism because I want to make sure that that product launches very well. I'm going to get, I'm going to need other departments excited about it. I'm going to want to celebrate 
what my team is achieving. So it is true that as you go through the life cycle, you may emphasize these things, but I do not want you to think that uh, a takeaway that these are strictly linear, you need to be able to flip between these mindsets at any point. Yeah, that makes it a lot more clear. And actually now I'm thinking naturally myself, like I see myself kind of like going around between these uh, four different mindsets naturally. But then I think just being aware of this framework and knowing what are, you know, because what you do is like you dig deep into each of these four mindsets and, you know, it's always good. Okay, you know what? To be mindful. Okay, if I'm doing some sort of like, you know, analyst work, I'd better keep in mind all these points that you brought up because, you know, in, in a point in time, you might kind of like not consider all the factors, but then having a reference like what you have, I think that's going to be super helpful. Yeah, let me give you an example of of just uh, why just even like, just knowing that those are the four different mindsets makes all the difference. Uh, so I've, I've had plenty of situations where, uh, say, a, a founder has been very excited about a particular idea and they've kind of presented the idea, maybe even as a solution. And because I got really excited by the idea, I didn't think I have to, in a disciplined way, look at this from these four different angles. I need to explore it. Well, maybe that solution that, that was presented to me is actually not the right solution. Maybe we should be allowing ourselves to step back and say, is that even the right solution? Secondly, I need to actually go and figure out if I've got data to support whether or not that's the right idea. Challenge, I need to actually potentially push back on my stakeholder and say, why do you believe that? And what about other more important things that we could be working on? Or what, what evidence is actually there? Just because there may be a recency like event or you might be, have one or two data points, do we really know enough to make that uh, important? So without really thinking dis discreetly, it could have been very easy for that idea to turn into a project and it could be the wrong thing for the business. Like what you hear so far, make sure to never miss an episode by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast has been made possible by listeners like yourself and I'm thankful for your support. Now let's head back to the show. Right, yeah. 100%. Now, you know, when I think about, and you talked about a little bit, now I'm curious, you know, when I think about product, you know, I, I think discovery and optimization. Now, I'm curious to know uh, if you could give us an example of how you apply these mindsets when you work on each of these two sides. Right. Um, so, so one being kind of more in this discovery mode uh, where you may have a, a kind of new maybe new product or a substantial like enhancement to a product and and then i guess you're asking in the other case on the feature optimization side it's more like how to kind of look at something that exists in market already and and, and incrementally improve it is that right 100 percent, yeah <laughs> yeah awesome uh yeah so uh discovery i'll give get, try to give you an example of of, of this so uh I was in a situation where uh, a product was it was it was tailored for college students and it was a subscription product and it was basically a product that allowed students to come in and and get uh, help with their homework if they got stuck uh, mm -hmm. so they would ba basically go in and they'd be able to sort of see problems worked through and being able to kind of break those problems down and and then apply. The, the way that the problem was being breaking down, they would often 
unblock them and they were able to kind of um, uh, get through and complete their homework, right? And mm -hmm. and so in many ways, it was it, the product was highly valuable because it, it had a, a a massive pain point, uh, a, a real sense of urgency, uh, and and unless you know the student was uh, the student really needed the product because they were basically stuck. But at the same time. Uh, it had very low en engagement rates because it only tended to be used when there was a, a, a student ran into problems. So it wasn't always top of mind. It didn't have really great sort of uh, uh, subscription renewals. It, it felt very much like a crutch, like it's only going to help you when you're really stuck and in trouble, but it didn't really feel like it was that, um, that everyday kind of study buddy as a, it was really more like kind of like the you know the uh, incremental occasional like uh, unblocker or lifeline and we didn't really feel great about the product and so we moved into uh, we basically decided we we're going to really uh, try to discover a new path for this product and uh, and and so first step was uh, spending time gathering context. And so we were actually in the analyst mindset at that point. We, we started to revisit the vision, get some more um, information from the market about what kind of problems the students were running into in terms of their broader uh, time. There's a college student product. So what were the issues they were running into at college more broadly than just doing their homework? Uh, and uh, and then we brought that context into a brainstorming session. And that brainstorming session is representative of kind of the explorer mode. So we, we showed here's, here's what we've learned from the market about what our customers really need. Here's a bunch of competitors and other subscription products that we admire and the kinds of things that they do. And so we shared that context and then we brainstormed. That's an example of really getting into that explorer mindset. And then uh, from that, we, uh, we then kind of moved a little bit more into the challenger mindset of kind of, okay, how are we going to prioritize, prioritize this? And then, uh, and then finally ex the exploration or the, the evangelist was that we really then uh, basically rewrote the vision, uh, talked about what we were, what, what new potential opportunities we were really going to tackle. And we then shared that throughout the organization and got people very excited about it. And it basically changed the course of that entire product. So there's an example of just the steps we took just to, and that's just purely the discovery phase, let alone later. An example on the feature optimization side uh, is uh, when I was uh, busy uh, with uh, A-B testing, uh, a, 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 another education product. I've just spent a lot of my time in educa online education. And so right. forgive me if, if, a lot of the, if a lot of the examples draw upon those, but this particular uh, product was uh, in market and we just had a, 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 a well-functioning product on its conversion uh, and onboarding and then engagement levels. But we really believed that we could, we could improve it. So uh, obviously with feature optimization in this particular case, the emphasis was on more quantitative product behavioral analysis. So in the analysis mindset, we were mainly looking at what users were doing today. And, uh, and we employed the explorer mindset essentially to come up with ideas where the focus was very much on how do we improve these specific, specific features and make them better. 
And so that was where we brainstormed and came up with this short list of ideas, then used the challenger mindset to force rank them, and then the analysis analyst mindset again to run A-B tests. So if you think about, like, these are not, I'm not bringing out, like, new ways of thinking or things that we don't naturally do. I'm just drawing attention to the deliberate things that we do do and should do and, and being disciplined about taking those steps as we, as we walk through um, each, of the, each of the phases. Interestingly, even in the feature optimization, you'd think, oh, you don't need any evangelism there. They're not talking about this new big idea. Well, you're wrong in that we, because we're taking risks, because we're actually in the weeds, it was very important to keep the team motivated and to actually educate the rest of the organization that we were taking risks and a lot of our A-B tests would actually fail. We had to get the team excited about being and being okay about taking risks. So that's where we were using the evangelism mindset to actually get everybody excited about what we're doing while also educating the rest of the organization that risk-taking means that we're going to fail and it's all about learning and 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 uh, and this team is doing the right thing. When we actually fail, that's actually a good sign. So there was these really interesting um, examples of of these mindsets at in play. Very different kind of ways of uh, or different different kind of product challenges, discovery versus feature optimization. Yet the mindsets were all present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's like much much more clear. And thanks thanks for sharing those. In the book, you also uh, you know talk about a few like five pitfalls you know of of you know to be watch watching out when you apply these four different mindsets as we speak. I'd like to cover a couple of those. And uh, the, the first okay. one, yeah, the first one, uh, you know, you mentioned that playing only to your strengths uh, as is, is a pitfall, and you suggested that you know uh, to be uh, conscious about what you naturally do and deliberately move out of your comfort zone to practice, you know, other skills, which I do agree. Now, there's a study done back in 2016, I think, by McKinsey, if I'm not mistaken, that they found out mm -hmm. that, you know, we tend to see yes. weaknesses as more changeable than strengths, which basically means that we're more inclined uh, to try to improve where we're weak. Uh, but, you know, the, the studies that have shown is that, you know, when we focus on developing our strengths, we grow faster than when trying to improve right. our weaknesses. So I'm, I'm curious right. to know what's your take on this. And also, uh, does this change whether you're, you know, an individual contributor or are you a product leader? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I actually do know. I, I remember reading the study in question, and and actually, and yes, there's many other studies. And I think uh, as I look as I look at sort of how we've thought about delivering feedback is just a great example. I everyone remember I I mentioned uh, it's important to be able to give each other feedback. We immediately assume it's going to be all negative feedback, right? What's <laughs> what's what horrible character flaws do I have that I, that I need to go and address? Uh, you know, so we have a tendency to focus on our, our weaknesses and then we have a tendency to focus on the weakness of others and we actually give uh, people less, less of a benefit of the doubt than we give ourselves. So there's all this sort of stuff that gets packaged in that. So I'm in strong agreement with the research that I've definitely seen when I focus on my, my strengths, I definitely grow more. I certainly feel more com more confident. I I 
I, I feel I can apply myself. Whereas with, you know, focusing on the weaknesses, I tend to, you know, you tend to simultaneously struggle and then also lose confidence. So there's a, there's a, there's a real, there's real truth in this. So I, I don't, I don't disagree with the research and I actually do strongly uh, live up to this when in, when, in particular, when I'm as my, as a leader of my, my own teams. Uh, so to answer your question, does this change between being an IC and a product leader? The answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, as a product leader, you need to be focusing on your strengths and seeing how you can grow and you need to be giving your, affording your team the same principle that you have for yourself. Uh, that is to focus on affirming and growing their strengths and not simply giving them lots of negative feedback and focusing on their weaknesses or doing an annual report and telling them all the things that they're not doing well. That's not a great um, management style is not a great way of growing a team. That that said, as a product leader, I think you need to get beyond a certain need for a, uh, affirmation. I think as a product leader, you need to be ready to be a little bit more uh, willing to just accept yourself and say, okay, th these are things I'm good at. These are things I'm not so good at. I'm going to get you know, my peers are probably going to be a little bit more blunt with me and I'm going to need to be ready to uh, be more focused on my weaknesses and I might be a little bit more thoughtful about, say, an associate PM or a PM and, and, and building them up a little bit more and building their confidence. But as a product leader, I should probably be beyond that a little bit. Uh, but, you know, it still goes to say that if you just focus on your weaknesses, I don't believe that you're, you're getting nearly the leverage you can out of uh, your growth. Now, that said, uh, great product managers have a growth mindset. And simply staying in your comfort zone, which is, I think, what you could potentially do if you merely say, I'm going to just focus on my strengths. Uh, I don't think that's to be tolerated. Uh, I, I think it's important that you do play to your strengths. And that requires you to have a, um, a, a good self-understanding and use it. And in particular, use that strength to balance others and to grow others and to help, you know, help others sort of succeed uh, as they develop that skill as well. I think it's important to understand and practice getting better at the things you're weaker on. Uh, but it really, I don't think you need to become masters at it. So I'll give you a, a case. Say, say, for example, you're not particularly you're, you're particularly introverted and you're not particularly comfortable going on customer interviews mm -hmm. or getting up on stage, right? So in the analyst case, you're not very comfortable going and talking to a whole range of customers uh, or in the evangelist sort of mindset, you're, you're not particularly one to get up on stage and, and celebrate a team success or do an all hands meeting or stuff like that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, like, I think it's important that you you break the ice and get yourself out of your comfort zone and just go and do them rather than avoiding them mm. and trying it out. You're not meaning you're not going to be great at it, but you, you, you're doing it is, 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 is an important step to starting to, to, to get that T shape that you're talking about. Yeah. And then, um, and then finally, the thing that's overlooked often, and, and that it's why I'm not saying that you have to do it all yourself. No, leverage others. If you're not a natural challenger, you're, you tend to like be a person who doesn't necessarily naturally see assumptions that are being made or 
or or, or you're, you you tend to be more op- over optimistic, go find the people in your organization who just seem to be great at finding problems at things. You may not enjoy that conversation, uh, so it requires that high emotional um, intelligence and the willingness to be a little bit vulnerable. But go leverage others to um, to fill in some of these gaps and and ask for their input on your product. Uh, so those are those are some some ways of kind of like, I guess, mitigating the weaknesses, if you will, and while still playing playing to your strengths. And I'm also going to say that you really need to adequately solve not just for your own strengths and weaknesses, but for your your organizations. So I'll give you a couple of cases. Um, if, you, if you have a gap in one of these mindset, a large gap, and that large gap is not only within yourself, but it may be organizationally uh, across the board, that can lead to disaster. So think of about a, a founder who is incredibly visionary very very confident in their in their in their vision or maybe a little authoritarian in their style uh, they tend to be very either you that you even get very swept up in their vision and kind of really excited about the about it or maybe just their authority and absolute conviction means that you skip analysis and critical thinking and challenging right and so by doing so, you may literally be uh, skipping the, st- the very steps that uh, are needed to catch what might be missing. And as a result, far from doing your founder a disservice, uh, or sorry, far from doing your founder a service by buying into their vision and immediately getting down to business, you're doing them a disservice by potentially making their vision more robust and, uh, and 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 a and a better, more um, uh, thoughtful uh, potential like product solution. Yeah, no, that does that does make a lot of sense. And thanks for uh, you know unpacking that for us. Uh, there was there was also like another pitfall you mentioned, uh, which was about you know when when we apply these four mindsets, uh, but we're not objective about them. Now I'd love if you uh-huh. could kind of. Tell us uh, about a couple of these biases, and uh, so we, we we know how to actually we can tackle those as well. Yeah, so going through the motions is dangerous. So you actually have to be be very deliberate and disciplined about applying these mindsets and uh, your situation, or rather, there, there may be some biases that you're you're uh, exposed to. Uh, or, or sort of cognitive biases, or maybe it's sort of an organizational like preference that may actually means that applying kind of say the challenger mindset or or uh, the explorer mindset might actually be harder to do because of the environment you're in, and uh, you may just literally miss it because it's not valued. Uh, so there's a, there's these inherent cognitive biases that um, that uh, actually after I've written and published the book I've gone on to do additional research and it's actually quite fascinating that just how many product managers are are actually facing kind of things that I don't think will surprise anybody but what surprised me was the extent of it and how it really does undermine great decision making so I'll give you a couple of examples Um, one I've already kind of spoken a little bit about is authority bias this is kind of where an internal external stakeholder 
in a position of power or expertise sort of assert something to be the true course of action. And the tendency is you skip the critical assessment. Maybe it's out of deference to authority or maybe there's an over-eagerness to please them. Or just even you might assume, well, they must have all the facts. You know, they're in a position of power. They must know what the right thing. But you can't get away from the fact that their direction or roadmap is still based on opinion. And I found that, like, uh, out of the surveys that I've run, 60% of PMs report that they frequently experience this and find it very, very challenging to overcome, you know, that actually even overcoming it is often seen to be dissent or disrespect. And sometimes the, you know, 95, I was quite surprised, 95% of PMs sometimes have fast-tracked a feature request simply because of who asked for it, not because of its actual value. And so this is, this is a, I think, a severe issue in that you were literally skipping those steps that, that can really um, make sure that this is a more robust um, idea. Now, there's nothing wrong with stakeholders strongly influencing the product direction. I'm sort of talking about their inadvertent misuse of the authority to prescribe very specific solutions or overall or disempower the PM. And it's very, very hard to to overcome. So um, there's not a lot that you can do necessarily except um, uh, try to bring everyone back to the hypothesis and the why that you're actually coming to a conclusion that a certain thing needs to be done. Right. Do that obviously in a deferential way, but make sure it's clear that, uh, that you need to understand why and a good, a good way of actually explaining this is uh, the reason why I'm asking why is not that I want to challenge whether or not we should do it. I need this context to be able to get my team excited mm-hmm. for this idea. Now, when you put it more about like, I need you to help me understand so I can be supportive of the idea so I can get others to kind of get excited about the idea, you can kind of change the dynamic that might be going on there a little bit. And then at that, that invitation, then now, now you have an invitation to kind of push back or to ask for, to buy, you know, effectively buy some time to do additional discovery work, to go out and understand the problem more deeply first, to ask, you know, say, hey, this is great. Let's, we're going to actually bring the team along for some more of the brainstorming rather than jump straight to the solution. And so you, you just get these opportunities to push back when you, when you can negotiate enough kind of uh, information and context from, from, uh, from the stakeholder. So that's kind of a, a good technique to over, overcome that one. Um, yeah. another, another one is also just to be really clear about the trade-offs that they're asking for. So the second technique I found that's quite useful is bring everyone back to the decisions that have already been taken and what's already in flight and the criteria by which you will arrive at that and be clear on the consequences and trade-offs of changing suddenly to go chase some new idea will be. And mm-hmm. um, when... When that reality is brought back, uh, you, you can literally ask, like, given our objective for this time period is this, what's changed in the business goals that means that we shall now do B over A? Mm-hmm. And quite often that'll bring everyone back to or the stakeholder back to saying, oh, no, actually, you're right. Let's finish what we've started 
and we can get to this later. And then that can really, that can be a good way of overcoming authority bias. Another common one is survivor bias. Mm-hmm. This is actually uh, getting more serious as our tools get better. Now, that actually sounds counterintuitive. But what, what's happening is that as we get uh, more advanced in our customer research tooling and approaches, our tools are getting much better at instrumenting our product. So we're getting much more signal about what users are, ba- are doing and behaving in the product. And um, user testing is becoming sort of more mainstream and, you know, recruiting users getting, getting easier. Um, the reality is, is that we tend to go for the more active customers or the more friendly customers or the ones that are more easily talked to. Our product uh, behavioral analysis, for example, will have a lot of information on users that are engaging with our product kind of every other day. But what about those users that maybe spent a couple of minutes with the product and decided it wasn't for them? They didn't even get onboarded. And if we don't like look at their data and and try to fill in the gaps, and it may be very scant, right? Because they may have literally signed up and decided not to use your product. Yeah. We could literally be facing survivor bias in kind of how we're making our decisions. And this is very, very common in um, both consumer and enterprise. And in fact, in enterprise, a great example of this is just constantly going back to the well for, the, for, uh, to the existing highly motivated customers that you've already got for your, you know, for, for, for roadmap input on prioritization, as opposed to talking to the customers you've lost or talking mm-hmm. to the customers you don't have yet. So that's an example of something that I'm finding quite common in, um, in, in this. And so this is where when you're thinking about the analyst mindset in particular, how do I make up for the gaps? How do I balance for the signals that I've got lots of? How do I actually turn down those signals and then emphasize finding more data points in those that are underrepresented? Uh, Very tough, but it requires being very deliberate about going and talking to a very diverse group of, of customers as well as Um, valuing things that you may not have a lot of data on things like early onboarding or um, or trying to uh, understand why customers have churned out early like you may not have a lot of data they may not be particularly interested in talking to you but you've really got to go through the extra effort Um, and just because an existing customer you have is easy to talk to uh, doesn't mean that you should do that instead the last one that I, I loved I loved thinking about is this this whole area of psychological safety and kind of the opposite of that kind of well a, a, a way of thinking about what the opposite of psychological safety is sort of having reputation risk and I, I Google did a, a brilliant study on on it was called Project Aristotle Aristotle uh, I mean I'm I think Google's a great company there's a lot of flaws because in the study, they obviously only look at their own teams. So there's only so much you can draw from that. But um, it is an interesting study, at least in terms of looking at different factors. And as a, as a leader, I've heard a lot about making sure that your team members understand the impact of their work or understanding the meaning of their work, spending a lot of time on purpose or metrics or structure and clarity and goals. And, and even dependency on sort of the team being able to be accountable and having clear expectations. 
And what's interesting is none of those matter as much as psychological safety, and that is being comfortable in taking risks in your team without feeling insecure or embarrassed or being told you're wrong. Mm. And what what's interesting with that is is that we, we've spent all this time with everything from developing these OKRs and sort of driving down decision making and you know being very clear on roles and responsibilities and and many many times we've actually missed the most important thing which is being able to create a team culture that can actually take risks without necessarily those being um, uh, a bad thing for me if I took a risk and I got it wrong and I've I've got a great example of this in a in a team where um, my team was was charged with kind of doing A B testing on our conversion flows, and after two quarters we just weren't moving the number. In fact, we weren't even making that ROI for the team. And I'm like, this is not good because that team we're going to have to disband. And when I got into understanding the team, we'd set them a goal. We said your goal was to get a 40% increase in our conversion rate over this period of time. And it was lofty and big and, and, and audacious. And we thought that was a fantastic kind of really motivating thing for the team. But when we really got into it, it terrified them. And uh, we also had been, they had been only doing safe, simple ideas that they felt would win. They thought their goal was to not make sure, to make sure that not any of the ideas that they rolled out would fail. And so they were doing all this little safe stuff instead of taking big swings and potentially being embarrassed by a failure or being held, you know, what they thought they'd be getting, you know, held accountable to that. So counterintuitively, taking the goal off the table, this 40% increase in conversion and simply emphasizing um, more experiments done quicker and bigger experiments done and trying to measure the behaviors that we felt might actually be mapped to the kinds of things that we wanted to see, did the team suddenly change? Uh, and they actually hit their goal. It was no longer the goal, but they actually hit the goal because we're emphasizing the, the psychological safety of the team. We're emphasizing kind of trying new things. We were even emphasizing like chaos at some level, like try ideas, doesn't matter if they don't work. You know, so long as you learn something from them, and and so uh, emphasizing that became became super important uh, because now the team felt very comfortable challenging each other, pushing on each other, coming up with dumb ideas or what they thought were dumb ideas. In fact, the survey that I've run on multiple product management teams is that uh, that uh, two thirds of teams say that when they have a team that they can challenge each other when they have doubts, doesn't matter what seniority that they feel that they're in a, 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 a high-performance team. Uh, those the teams that prototype, validate, iterate, and aren't, aren't afraid to put out sort of half-baked, you know, quote-unquote, it's not, not appropriate in all environments. You don't want to launch a rocket ship to the moon that's half-baked. But uh, being able to prototype and validate and iterate, that's, that's super important. Being willing to roll back something that's not working uh, having regular retrospectives and and questioning how the team is working and what they can do better, and then celebrating both what works, but also celebrating 
when something doesn't work and the fact that they just tried stuff. Those are all highly correlated with these uh, psychological safe teams or ones that have this absence of kind of this reputation risk. Right on. Yeah, no, I mean, there's lots and lots of golden nuggets you shared with us. Uh, again, thank you so much. And you know, you know what, guys, like, there's a lot more uh, kind of aspects to this whole four minds of influential product managers and the pitfalls and what you look out for. So be sure to definitely check out the book. And I was actually my next question can, uh, like, yeah. where can our listeners, you know, hear more about this yourself and the book itself? Where can they find it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, uh, you can pick this up from Amazon or any other great book retailer online. Uh, there is uh, uh, the the paperback uh, version, uh, which is a great it's great reference guide. You can kind of get fl uh, flip through it. There is an ebook version, and there's even an audio book version. But don't worry, I didn't uh, I didn't actually do the the voiceover for it. Someone else did. So you won't won't have to listen to me talk uh, talk through all of it again. Uh, please do visit the website, uh, the complimentary website. With this, it's it's influential p m i n f l u e n t i a l p m dot com. Uh, and then there, you also have a number of talks and a number of different things, including more information about these cognitive biases that I was just talking about. And please do feel free to connect on um, me with LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash in slash Ken Sandy, K-E-N-S-A-N-D-Y. Uh, just drop me a note, say that you heard me on this podcast and I would be, I'd love to connect and answer any other questions you have. Awesome. Awesome. That's very awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Ken, again, for being on the show. Really appreciate your time and talking about your book on the influential product managers. Thank you. It was a it was a, a, a great time. So thanks thanks for the opportunity. That's it for this week's episode of PM Hub Podcast, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's session. And if you did, feel free to share it on your social media and leave a five-star review so we can reach more audience together. If you have any suggestions, uh, definitely send them uh, through my way. You can reach out to me on uh, my email cyrus at productmanagerhub.org or you can just find me on social media linkedin you can you should be able to find me now you can get all the tips and action items of this episode for free at this bit.ly link i'm going to give you it's bit.ly forward slash pmhub18 also make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app uh, so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes i'm cyrus Slayman, and until next show stay safe and healthy